IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to emails written by you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, a man who believes that maybe this year will be better than the last, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, it is year-end list season, so you got to like start your introduction off with, in these trying times, or it was brutal <laughs> out there, Ian, wasn't it? Like, just something that... Make just something that acknowledges the fact that yeah, people had difficulties this year, and that you know. But you know, I'm but, proud but, of but myself what? in my own list <laughs> that I didn't do that. I did not do any references to it was a hard year, but uh, this uh, uh, you know, Little Sims record really got me through it yeah. in uh, 2021. You know, it was the music that brought us together, really, Stephen. Like, can't you agree with that? I thought this year was better than last year. I thought 2021 was better than 2020, right? 2020 was like the rock bottom year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 2021 was like a little bit better, wasn't it? <sighs> I guess. I mean. or I mean, you got Trump. We had Trump in 2020. Yeah, you know, there, was I mean, the, there were no vaccines in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I also bought a house and got married this year. But also. There you go. Yeah. I, yeah. But does all of that top say, oh, I don't know, like, like, uh. The glass, the glass beach remix album. I mean, like, can can anyone really say for sure? It's like, honey, uh, I know that uh, you know my my our, our wedding day was one of the best days yeah. of my life, uh, but it was not as good as when I got the promo of the glass beach record. <laughs> I actually think that might have been twenty twenty one. Fuck. Okay. Well, my my okay, my, so my whole interpretation of the year end has been shot to pieces. We're off to a great start today. You mentioned year-end list season, oh, yeah. and I have to uh, shout out my, my my good buddy Rob Mitchum. Every year, he does a spreadsheet where he compiles all of the best of lists, and it's an he comes with he comes up with an aggregate of you know what the consensus is for the favorite albums of the yeah. year. And uh, I was looking at his uh, spreadsheet, and it's still a work in progress, and I think it's still like a little tilted toward. Um, British magazines. Yeah, but what I'm looking at is that it's still uh, alphabetical. So, well, no, I had it fixed oh. here. Uh, that uh, I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, here we go. So, like the the top album so far. Okay. Tyler the Creator. Okay. Little Sims, which okay. I already made a reference to. Okay. Uh, Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders, number three. Right. Japanese Breakfast. Okay. Weather Station, Low. That's the top, I guess, there five or is. six. My feeling, though, is that if you look at a lot of these lists, there's some consensus maybe from like slots three to eight mm-hmm. or so. But this isn't a year where it seems like there's one or two or three like dominant albums. You know, like how a lot of times on these lists you feel like, okay, I'm going to see Fiona Apple up there. I'm, yeah. Or I'm going to see, you know... Uh, Lana Del Rey. Lana or, Del you know, Rey. In 2018, yeah. Idols, uh, Joy is a Form of Resistance, you know, like Exactly. <laughs> this isn't a year like that. And, you know, a lot of times you hear from music critics complaining at this time of the year, like, oh, I'm always seeing the same albums. Mm-hmm. It's so boring. I think you're seeing a lot more diversity this year in terms of the albums that are being picked, which I think is great on one level. But it also makes me wonder, I'm going to pose this question to you. Ah. Does this also mean that there's actually not maybe like an all-time classic record that came out this year. Because I feel like a lot of times, you know, we complain about lists being samey, but sometimes there are certain albums that deserve to be at the top because they're just that great. Yeah. And are we just missing that one great album? Or is this, again, just a sign that people are listening wider and farther and that should be something that's celebrated? Well... I think that there is a there there is a lot of consensus uh, going on in that like for example Turnstile made the only uh, punk rock album of 2021. Congratulations to them. Um, you know we get a lot of like Japanese breakfast up there, and like I think that there's a lot of like contenders, but no clear cut number one. And you know I don't know if this really represents like uh, a diversifying of you know, listenership or what have you. I think it's just really 
there wasn't anything that came across to define the year. And I think that's kind of how the one, like we've talked about this many a time, how like the one year of the decade, like 2011, 2001 is really at the moment, somewhat of a rebuilding year uh, where we are still just kind of seeing where the future of music is going to go. And I think that like, we're going to see like one of these artists um, come out in maybe like 2022 or 2023 with like an album that just completely like sweeps everything. And we realize, oh, this is what was really happening in 2021. So I don't know. I still think a lot of them are pretty samey. I find myself gravitating towards like the really hardcore genre lists, like the metal ones that like Kerrang or whatever, or like the electronic ones, because I know I won't see, you know, the same old like, uh, you know, like Squid or like Weather Station or what have you populating the top. And also there's like not a desire from them to like talk, oh, this is what this year meant, as opposed to these were just so happened to be the albums I listened to the most. You know, this just occurred to me now, so I'm thinking about this theory in real time, but Mm. I wonder to what degree this is a reflection of, like, a post-Trump hangover. (laughs) Because, you know what I mean? Because I feel like in the late 2010s, in culture writing, that was such an easy hook. Yeah, it totally was. You could ascribe significance to something... Because it was supposedly a reaction against Trump, and it gave certain songs or albums extra weight. Like even like WAP from last year, you know, which was the consensus song of the year. Oh yeah, I feel like people. Lo- part of what people loved about that song is that it made Ben Shapiro mad. You know, so it was a way. <laughs> yeah, to when that song when that song Trump goes off in the world. club or whatever. Well, not the club. It was twenty twenty. But yeah, that people are thinking of thinking of Ben Shapiro when they're throwing ass, man. Well, I know, but <laughs> there's a yeah. difference between regular people and how people wrote about it. Oh, and, well, pss, no, yeah. And I'm t- and I'm talking about year endless, you right. know, or when you know. Uh, Childish Gambino, uh, this is America. Oh. You know, like that that becomes the consensus song right. of that year because again, I think for culture writers, you want to connect it to something larger that makes it feel more significant. Or, right. you know, one of your favorite bands in nineteen seventy five, you know, mm. Love It If We Made It. Like that was another song where this is a song about the overload of social media in <laughs> the age of uh, you know Trump or whatever, and this year, it was one of those years like where there wasn't that sort of overriding narrative mm. that you could attach. You, you, you know, you could hang an album on a narrative like a Christmas tree ornament and say <laughs> this is what elevates it. Mm. You know, because you have Joe Biden in the office, you have like more COVID, and obviously COVID is still a disrupting. presence in our culture but it's like not as bad as it was last year like we're kind of getting back to normal yeah but it's not fully all the way there i just wonder if that has influenced the way people thought about music this year and if it just made albums feel less significant because you couldn't attach it to a larger narrative yeah does does that make sense i mean i totally it totally makes sense and i think you're and i think you're right about that um because i think we're still just kind of um figuring out like what our culture is you know i mean like it's kind of hard to believe that it was only this year that like joe biden actually became the president like that happened like this year the year in which we're currently living and it feels like it's been forever and so um and also you know like a lot of these records were like created at a time probably where like you know like in the middle of covid and people were still thinking about it and so I, I don't know, man. I think that event. I think that this all speaks to more will be revealed about 2021. Like maybe this, maybe like Pink Panthers or whatever, um, you know, makes an album in 2022 that really like changes the way we uh, think about music in the TikTok era or um, uh, or something like that. But I, I don't know. You know, I wrote about. Uh, you mentioned 2011. I remember I wrote a piece back then making the same case that I don't know if I'm making this case. I'm just bringing it up as a possibility. I think it's an interesting thing to contemplate the, the idea that there's a lot of really good albums this year, but maybe no sort of all time important record. And that was a case I made in 2011. And you were talking about that. I was just looking at the albums that came out in 2011. Yeah. You have the bunny bear, bunny bear, uh, 
PJ Harvey let England shake, huh. watch the throne, which seems oh. very 2011. Yeah. You have Drake take care, which yeah, I think that's a classic. Look, they would look at that as a classic. You have who yeah. kill by two yards. Yeah. Uh, M83. That was, that's like, that's the M83. one I think of. Yeah. Nostalgia ultra by Frank Ocean. Uh, you know, his uh, kind of breakthrough, I guess channel orange was where he really blew up, but that was the beginning really. Mm. I think of him be being the man, uh, kaput by destroyer. Oh yeah. Uh, that's a record I'd say. So, I mean, there's definitely good records that came out that year. Adele 21. Uh, (laughs) Adele is really getting a lot of shine this year. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, Um, how, how can you, this person is like literally bent the industry to their will. I mean, like today, like, uh, today, you know, the American football single came out and they're not going to be able to press vinyl until June. (laughs) Right. I'm surprised that, I mean, I don't know how I feel about Adele. I think she's all right. I, I I'm yeah. a little surprised that there isn't more backlash against Adele, just yeah. because I feel like she seems like a pretty juicy target, just because mm. she is such a monolith in the industry. And it seems like, and you know, I guess people just really love that record, so they're not going to uh, call it out. But I'm I'm surprised that it's been. It seems pretty unanimous that people love that record. I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't had more detractors than it than it seems to have why why don't you go ahead and be the detractor see how that works (laughs) out for you (laughs) well we'll see i don't know i like to push other people off the uh, cliff uh Mm. i'm trying to inspire uh people Mm. listening out there it's like a manchurian candidate situation where i'm (laughs) hoping to trigger an assassin out there take (laughs) this record down with my words uh by the way great segue from uh adele to american football Oh, By the God, way, that, that yeah, was that was a that was a fantastic segue there, uh, and that single because they they did a cover of Fade Into You, right? They did, and look, man, like I I, I saw that I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, because that's like that's like up there with I'm on Fire or Wicked Game as like every single band would cover it, but you know they did it they did it like it sounds like an American football song. So I mean, I would be super stoked if they ended up making a covers album. Where they just took like the uh, indie can the indie songbook and just did it in like you know all these in- interesting time signatures with twinkling guitars and so forth. Like I think they really did something interesting with it. So that and that's not that is not easy to do with a song that overplayed. Well, I just appreciate that they announced that before we recorded, and I yeah. feel like there was quite a bit of indie news this week oh yeah that dropped earlier in the week not after we recorded because that's always my biggest frustration when someone <laughs> does something hilarious and then we like just finish recording and we can't talk about it yeah um and this just happened this morning too this is thursday morning saint vincent mm-hmm. uh new single uh it's a pay your way in pain remix by idols yes that dropped uh, I think that proves that she listens to the show. Uh, uh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't she? It, but like, did Idols do it as a band, the, the remix? Or is it just like the lead singer? Maybe it's like the guy who just strips down to his underwear. Like that's may- Maybe that's the real creative <laughs> engine in the band. And um, uh, like, Are they playing on the record? Is that the idea? That it, is this like a post-punk, huh. uh, like, like like shouty version of that yeah. song. You, you, I, did I, you really? I yeah, I, I was about to say. I think it was a little too much expectation for me to actually listen to this thing before coming on. Like, why would why would I do that when we could just like have a good laugh about it instead? Yeah, the headline is so great. Yeah. I feel like if there were an IndieCast bot, yeah. it would have produced that headline. Yes, because uh, that just seems like something we willed into the world. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to listen to it either. I'm just going to enjoy the headline yeah. because the headline will not be topped by the music. I promise uh, I'll listen to sh- it by the next episode. How about that? All right. All right. You listen to it. You tell me what it's like. I'm just going to enjoy the headline. Um, also got to shout out my man, Father John yes. Misty. He's been busy on Instagram this week. He, he posted a photo of himself on Instagram with black and white picture. And he has a beard <laughs> and apparently he shaved yeah. his head. We, not completely. It's just... Like a very short yeah, haircut, like, and you had a good tweet about yeah, this. like the terrible Kendall Roy. Like, what is this guy doing? Uh, like, just go with the full baldy man. Commit to the fucking bit. Like, he looks, he looks well. Great. Yeah, he looks handsome. He, as hell. Yeah, I know. I 
I good. can't hate, man. Like, fuck, fuck that guy for being, you know, for looking like Father John Misty and being Father John Misty. I mean, it's like, man, you look even more handsome than I usual. Know. Here. I'm not afraid to say that. I'm not afraid to say, Father John Misty, you look even more handsome yeah. than you normally do in that photo. You know, I'm, I'm gearing up for a feisty Father John Misty album cycle because I'm already seeing people do this performative dislike of father john misty it's not performative i know yeah people people like actually don't like what he stands for but but what does he stand for like what what is the thing that people think he stands for that they're rebelling against uh i don't know i think maybe it's just like um the slow drip from like the night uh, the night josh tillman came to my apartment i think he just kind of i don't know i think maybe he's just like a symbol of um uh, the the incorrigible dude songwriter who gets away with certain things or I I I, I don't but know. But he hasn't. He, he's not an abuser. There's no like skeletons in the closet. Yeah. You know, there's nothing. He's never been accused of doing anything bad. He's just a guy who's done interviews that some people find to be obnoxious. Well, I think that maybe that's it. Where it's you know he's a person who kind of under who doesn't see the writer uh, artist relationship as symbiotic, which uh, you know, that that's a little hard to deal with for a writer, I suppose. I just for me personally, I like really good singers who yeah. write beautiful music and put witty and insightful lyrics over the top. Yeah. That's just me. Apparently, that is a controversial opinion, but I to me that's like what he does, and he does it very well. Yeah. I'm excited for his album. Uh I'm excited for a feisty album cycle. I might have to get in there and throw some punches. Rhetorically speaking, I, like God's favorite customer, like that did not generate a lot of fun content. I we need we need him to get back on his bullshit. Also, we gotta like think about how the 1975 like did basically nothing this year. There was not a lot of feistiness. We we need those two to come back like really strong in 2022. What if there is a thing where like the Father John Misty album and like a 1975 album drop in the same week? Then we're gonna have to just do like an everyday indie cast. Like, yeah, that's gonna be like a four-hour episode. We're gonna be throwing jabs yeah, at the other person's face. Our get back—that's what it's. Gonna it is. Be. <laughs> that's gonna be our get back because it's yeah. gonna get ugly. It's gonna be. You're gonna be taking shots at my guy. Yeah. I'll be taking shots at your person, your people in the 1975. It's it's gonna be uh, that that would be insane. So you know, I'm gonna will that into existence. Yeah. Just saying, we're pretty good at that. Yeah, if they drop on the same day. Because I'm assuming the 1975, like you said, they've been quiet. I assume that there's mm. an album in the works from them. They, I, they're probably in the lab yeah. working on something. Because how long has it been since their last record? It's been two years. Well, two I years. mean, a year and a half. Like, I think, a year and a half. Yeah, it, I think it was like eight. But not that long. No, long not that them, long. Though. But it seems like an eternity. Yeah, it's long for them. It's, the, it's definitely the longest they've ever been without beat. Because that last album had like a like a like a a 10 month album rollout so right and i it you know you mentioned how god's favorite customer was a quiet album cycle because uh Josh Tillman didn't do any press he didn't do any interviews uh. and which seemed like a reaction to the pure comedy mm. tourist uh album cycle where he talked to everybody and I thought it was brilliant. I loved that album cycle. That's still one of my favorites. A lot of people didn't like it. I thought he was great. Mm. I loved reading Father John Misty interviews. Uh, but Maddie Healy did something similar yeah. on the last 1975 record. And he was probably like, all right, I'm going to chill out for a while. Yeah, I've stirred the pot. Time to step back. Mm. And I kind of miss him. I was a person who reacted negatively to Maddie Healy. And now I feel like, okay, I would like you to come back. Because it is fun to talk about. Mm. So... Please come back, Josh Tillman, Eddie Healy. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's make 2022 a better year than this one. All right. So let's get to our mailbag. And like I said at the top, we're only answering questions. It's an entire mailbag segment. We did not do a mailbag segment last week because we did our albums of the year. So we're making up for that. Yeah. Trying to clear out the bag here a little bit. So our first question comes from Matt and Arnold Missouri. Oh, Arnold yeah. Missouri. That could be someone's that could be like a chill wave name. <laughs> That's like a Boney Vare song. <laughs> Arnold Arnold Missouri. Yeah. Please, my, my father calls me Arnold. You can call me Arnie. Yeah. Um Arnie uh Missouri. Uh 
curious what you two think of Christmas music. <laughs> Best song and album, or maybe you don't think anything of it at all. Uh, so a timely question, a yeah. seasonal question. Tis the season. Um, I, now, as, <laughs> do you want to go first on this? I, yeah, I, 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 mean, I feel like I, I'm trying to be sensitive here because as as a Jewish person, yeah, do you, do you just feel like attacked this time uh, of the year with all this I don't Christmas know. Like, music? I, that, the thing, like I, I don't. I've come to terms with it because, you know, Christmas means we get like time off of work and so forth and all those good holiday deals. But um, the other day I was in Ralph's and, you know, I had the unique pleasure of hearing Manchester Orchestra's The Gold. Um, oh, yeah. like, oh, fuck. That's a cool song. And also it's like, wait, they're Great not grocery playing- store song, too. Yeah. That's the- I've heard that song in multiple grocery stores. Yeah. Go get it, man. And um but it's like, wait a minute, they're not playing Christmas music. Like, what's up with that? Because, like, it becomes this ambient, uh, like, all-consuming thing. Like, everywhere you go, it's, uh, you know, there's Christmas music. And I I guess I've become, like, kind of immune to it. Um, one of my most formative experiences as uh, a retail employee during the holiday season, which I think everyone need, I think everyone should have to do retail work uh, during the Christmas season. It teaches a lot about patience and how to deal with people. I worked at the gap in, I think 1998. And that was the year that swing really broke. And so we had an entirely swing. <laughs> it was like all Christmas songs, but like performed in a swing style. Uh. There's like a Tumblr that has the soundtrack playlists and I, I really need to find that so I can, you know, retcon that soundtrack and just, you know, re-experience that. Also, neither here nor there. I know there was like a lot of Brian Setzer on there. It's like oh, yeah. I, he's like a top nominee, I think, for like the most pernicious music influence of all time. Like, no, oh yeah, yeah. There's gonna be like if there's like a time period that he can retcon and think of like, man, this is what real music was like, and you know. All sorts well, of to, to bring back swing music and then go the extra mile to do Christmas swing music, uh, that's the work of the devil. I'm also thinking like rockabilly and all, which is right. like easily like the lowest form of music as far as I'm Rock- concerned. <laughs> Rock- I mean, I, the original rockabilly people. Yeah, think, but are, like are I'm talking, cool. about, I'm talking about like modern day Teddy boys. Like, yeah, this is back when men were men. And oh uh, man, I'm I. I I want to see the rockabilly people come out of the woodwork in our listenership. There's got to be a couple rockabilly people out there. Yeah, ring a ding ding. That was ding Ian for you who bozos. said that, by the way. <laughs> people sometimes can't tell like what I say and you say, so I'm just gonna. Ian is the one taking shots. Yeah. At rockabilly culture, I'm gonna be Switzerland here. I am not gonna take a stance on rockabilly culture. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that would be awful. Yeah, that would be a the, tough if, experience if uh, working if he, at the Gap in '98 and hearing Christmas swing music. Yeah, I want all the smoke from you, Reverend Horton Heat fans. Oh my God! <laughs> but otherwise, those people—they might know how to fight. That's the thing with those people. And living in Southern California, yeah. I think you have to be especially careful because that seems like a hotbed. Yeah. Oh God. Of rockabilly like, culture. Yeah, that and like social distortion, which is sort of rockabilly adjacent. Oh yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, Dudes with sideburns and yeah, like the bouffant the, yeah. thing, and Ugh. smoking cigs, got the like cigarette pack rolled up in the short sleeve shirt, oh, that fuck, whole thing. Man. Oh god! But otherwise, yeah, my Christmas regimen is posting Jimmy Eat World's twelve twenty three ninety five on that day on Instagram. Joyce Manor's Christmas card on that day. You know, Christmas done that every year since two thousand fourteen. Otherwise, I try to find albums with sleigh bells on it, like you know the Walkman's old albums, and that's that's the extent of my Christmas music. I don't mind it. Yeah, you know, I I, I agree with you. I think most Christmas music, I think of it the same way that I think of Christmas decorations. You know, it's just part of the atmosphere, the environment of this time time of year. You know, and just as I wouldn't critique a Christmas tree, I don't really feel the need to critique Christmas music. It's just, it's not even really music to me. There's very few Christmas albums that I would listen to outside of the Christmas season. And these are very chalky choices, but the John Fahey uh, Christmas album, you know, the great uh, acoustic guitarist Mm. and the Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, again, very chalky choices, but th- those two albums, I think, there's a reason why they are often recommended this time of year. They're, they you know, they stand apart, I think, from a lot of Christmas music. Um, I tend to hate like any new form of Christmas music, <laughs> music that tries to update it to modern pop styles. 
Speaking of news uh, that came out this week, did you see that announcement about the Christmas song with Ariana Grande, Megan Thee Stallion, and Jimmy Fallon? Um, uh, it, it's called <laughs> It Was a Ellipses Mass Christmas. I so got it's like a COVID-themed Christmas song with I, Jimmy Fallon. I just got to admire their restraint that like they didn't get like James Corden on that. Like, uh, I mean, uh, Corden is pissed that he didn't think of that. I first. know, man. Like his his time is over, but. I see Gordon that. Gordon is probably doing a thing like where he's dressing up as Santa Claus and like dancing in the street with like dancers dressed up as reindeer. You know, there's probably something like that coming down the pike from Corden. Yeah. Because you know, he loves to dance. Yes, he does. He loves to do like show tune type stuff. So uh, yeah. this might be too hip for him. He he may, you know, this is like, oh, I can't. Although I, I, Ariana Grande for sure was probably on carpool karaoke. Oh, yeah. If you had to have been. Yeah, I, um, I would like to just like, uh, maybe that's like what we need to see. Like, you know, the behind the studio version of that song where like you just talk like, you ask like Meg Thee Stallion, like, hey, like, what do you, what do you think about this for real? You know, <laughs> but. I know. And like, and how much are they being paid for that? I mean, are they making money? Is like the, probably is the not. Tonight Show forking over money? Then like, what's the point of this? This just seems. To win the internet. Know, it seems like an abomination. Yeah. Um, similar to you, you know, uh, you, you you mentioned Jimmy World Song as being like one of your holiday traditions. I have to shout out something I wrote this week about Counting Crows Along December <laughs> being my favorite holiday song. I went in deep, like in depth on that song. And that's a song that I have this very silly Twitter tradition where I tweet a lyric from that song every day. Mm. I think to annoy people, but also because I love the song <laughs> and it's December. And I think some people like it. Although I know I get at least two unfollows every time I do it, but you know, it, 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 I do it for the love of the game. You can't worry yeah. about that kind of thing. So, uh, so yeah, Counting Crows, Long December. That's probably my favorite holiday song of all time, and it applies to any holiday, not just Christmas. It applies to Hanukkah, applies to Kwanzaa. By the way, I was going to ask you, as our Jewish correspondent yeah. on IndieCast, how do you feel about uh, the Heim cover of the Hanukkah song? You know what they've they track? they've earned it. Like, I mean. They they are representing for you know Jewish culture all you know in the greater indie world. I've always said about them and Vampire Weekend that they just remind me of being for better and worse. They remind me of being in Jewish youth group like back in the '90s. So that it kind of completes the circle that they're um, covering uh, Adam Sandler because I mean that got a lot of spins. You know, well, and in, like uh, your issue is always that they they remind you of like the popular kids. Yeah. At camp, but they're also like nice. Like, yeah, they're, not... they're they're nice, and that I really wish so I you want to hate them. them, but you can't. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, yeah, I lose on else? both ends. <laughs> right, they're all very likable. Fuck people. them for You're being like... so nice, and apparently, and, uh, like you know, also multi talented, great at acting. You know. Yeah, exactly. I haven't yeah, seen Ezra that movie Koenig, yet, but... Ezra Koenig, very nice guy and talented guy, and yeah, yeah a lot of a Haim starring in the new. Uh, PTA movie, which I haven't seen yet because it's not in my part of the country. Yeah, we are we are not the coastal elite. Uh, is it not in San Diego either? No, you see that it's L.A. and New York. Like as far as we're concerned, like San San Diego might as well be like I don't know Charlotte, North Carolina, compared to like <laughs> just it's like oh that you know it's, I know that's a big city. You know they have professional sports teams, but yeah, we don't need to open there. Like they can wait till Christmas. That's so weird. I, I thought for sure you'd be getting that already. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah, I don't feel as uh, culturally isolated now. Um, let's move on to our next question. Yeah. Uh, do you want to read this one? Yeah, I'll do that one. Uh, so this one is about, of course, I, I feel like this one was a long time coming. A uh, question about get back. So this comes from Kyle, who's from London. Uh, so. If, like me, you've devoured Peter Jackson's Get Back doc on the Beatles, my question is, in the indie rock universe, which album would you love for there to be a fly-on-the-wall eight-hour documentary about? And Kyle also mentions that London is home to the people who find the Beatles playing on a roof an annoyance. Yes, that's one of the funniest things about that, that there's, in, at the end of that movie, all yeah. the people <laughs> mad. The Beatles have not played live in three years. This is going to be their last concert ever, and there's still people who are like, Hey, get the cops over there. <laughs> That's kind of an Australian accent. Yeah. Accent. Yeah. You, we, uh, it was we, awful. Yeah. We've, we've talked, we get, we still, we've had to talk about your accent. And I just love yeah, that. I, know. Still. I actually got some, I got some hate from 
our Australian listeners, because I was doing an Australian accent on a recent episode, they did not appreciate my cultural appropriation of their of their way of speaking. <laughs> Dang. Uh, so I apologize for that. I, I'm sorry. I have a thing for accents. I'd like to slip into them from uh, every now and then. Um, so this is a good question. This was asked on Twitter recently. Someone you know did a Eric Alper style prompt tweet <laughs> about this, and I, the answer I gave then was Chinese Democracy, the Guns N' Roses record. Mm. Because I feel like that's like one of the only albums like where eight hours might not be enough yeah. to show the entire making of that record. I, I would just want to dig deep into all of the delays and weirdness and like Axl Rose's psychics and you know, all the bucket things that head. he had going on. Yeah, Buckethead coming in and out. Uh, Tommy Stinson, all oh, that yeah. stuff. But obviously Chinese Democracy, not an indie rock record. So... It was actually making me think of like an album I once called the Chinese Democracy of Indie Rock Records, which is the uh, Renz record, the follow-up uh, to The Meadowlands, which is kind of coming out yeah. today, the, the, the day that this episode posts, uh, the Eon Station record. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you did a story on this for, for Spin. I, I did. did a story like a year ago where I interviewed Charles Bissell from that band. Yeah. And I guess... I don't know if he's the McCartney or the uh, the Lennon in this. Uh. Kevin Whelan kind of looks more like Paul McCartney, <laughs> so we'll say it's him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you do, you, you talked to him, and he seemed like he didn't want to dig too deep into the strife there. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought of this as maybe more like a, I sort of wish that it was like Love, uh, love Below speaker boxed, you know, because the 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 reputation is that Kevin's like more of the straightforward guy, the big boy. Uh, whereas you know Charles Bissell is like the kind of uh, like off on a tangent, um, you know, perfectionist. And I mean, it's not like it's not even so much that he didn't want to get into it. Like, also really disarmed me because at the beginning when I started talking to Kevin, he's like he knew like what my job was, knew that I was married, and like man, it's like. I'm just thinking like this guy, like I remember being 23 listening to the Meadowlands and it's like, oh, like just revering this band. And all of a sudden, like I'm talking to this guy like, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about homeownership. How do you know and that man, you were married? I don't know, dude. Like it, it was. Is he an IndieCast listener? Is he listening or, right now? Fuck if I know, dude. Like, but it's like it, it, I, I can't describe the feeling when like the, there's an artist that you really admire who know, actually knows actual things about your life. You know, it's like. It's similar to how sometimes at work, and I know that, you know, as as the Joe Lunchpail of the indie cast, you know, the guy with the day job and man yes. of the people, like, yeah, I don't know, Steve, earth. if you'll ever know what it's like when one of your coworkers or, like, clients, they get that look in their eye where you just know they're going to bring up the, like, hey, man, I know about your podcast. You're never going to uh, know what that's like. Well, I do, though, because I live in a part of the country where most people don't even know what music criticism is. Right. So it is still a surprise to me if I meet someone yeah. and they're aware of what I do. I mean, yeah. I think it's such a, it's like, it is like working in the mob. It is like <laughs> the subterranean world that most people don't understand. Yeah. This thing uh, of ours. But uh, I don't know. I, I, like that would be, I, I, maybe it'd be a boring documentary. I think it, it like would. A lot of like waiting around. Yeah. Cause you brought but, up like he didn't want to get into it. Like I didn't really want to get into it either. You know, it's like, I think this record is really, it's excellent on its own terms and is being a bit dragged down by its baggage. And you know, it's like there, there's are there, there's a lot of like, you know, uh, know what this person's saying is not true. Like unless you get them both together, in the same room. Like we're never going to get to the bottom of it. So I kind of wanted it to be more about, uh, the album itself. It just sounds like, and from what Kevin was saying and from what Charles is saying as well, it's a lot of like, Oh, we took this year off. Cause like we were getting married or having kids. It's a lot of waiting. So, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm glad it's finally out in the yeah, world and, and hopefully Charles will get his music out soon. I interviewed him, um, I think that was this year, early this year. It was. I had to, it, was, it was January. Yeah. So almost a year ago now, uh, and he was saying that he was close. And <laughs> I really hope, you know, maybe now that this record is out, Kevin's record, yeah. it'll push him to get his record out. But you know, who knows? And you've already waited this long. I guess you might as well just see it the full nine yards. 
uh, at this point. The full so anyway, nine yards. Inter- what a great metaphor because you need to get ten. Uh, well, there's the whole nine yards. Or am I just thinking of that because there's a movie called The Whole Nine Yards, the, the Bruce Willis movie. Isn't uh, that a saying? Probably. Maybe I'm wrong. Are you familiar with the Bruce Willis movie where I'm he not. plays <laughs> – I think he's like a mobster in the suburbs. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of like a Sopranos-like movie. I think it came out around the time The Sopranos mm. started. Mm. Anyway, we don't need to go on a whole nine yards. We'll, we'll start a whole nine yards podcast. Yeah. We'll just talk about that movie. Uh, but what would be your get-back choice? So, I mean, I think that movie or that documentary proved that even for like the most legendary bands, it's like 2% magic, 98% like boring repetition. So... What I, you know, if we're going to use that framework, there needs to be abandoned conflict. Uh, the project has to be kind of doomed. I think that's more interesting to me. Like it needs right. to happen, but it needs to be doomed. And they're all set to be like random guests dropping by. And so the biggest problem I had with the otherwise great Oasis documentary, Supersonic, is that it stopped right before they did Be Here Now. And Absolutely. Yeah. So that one, like I would watch 16 hours of that, you know, is. Oh wait, the, the Gallagher brothers coked up out of their minds, like them yeah. selecting uh, choppers for the, you know what I mean, video, Johnny Depp oh, coming man. by to lay down slide guitar, yeah. the key change to all, like to all around the world. This is all excellent stuff. Uh, yeah. The, the grandiosity yes. is what really draws you in. And that's part of what's, I think, appealing about Get Back because you're right. They're doing a lot of things that are boring, but it's the Beatles doing it. Yeah. So it just makes it more interesting. Like if it was any other band or most bands, it would, it would be unwatchable, but it's <laughs> like, wow, there's, yeah, they're playing, uh, I've got a feeling for like the hundredth time, but like, look at Paul McCartney's turtleneck. I yeah. mean, doesn't he look fantastic? You know, there's just the glamour that they have, even when they're doing very mundane things, that makes that movie, I think, so much fun to watch. My favorite line of the entire um, entire documentary is like John Lennon saying, "Yeah, I have a lot of great ideas. I'm literally a Beatle." <laughs> right. I love the self awareness. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I, yeah, we're uh, the shit. Yeah, we're the, exactly. We're the Beatles. But as, um, as far as, like, the indie album, um, I tried to, like, limit myself to thinking about this year. I would love to see a making of documentary for The Arms Ultra Pop, A, because all of their uh, filmed material, like their videos, the uh, Adult Swim live performance they did, the um, they also made, like, a live movie uh, at Live at the Masonic Temple, which is just incredible. It, like, might be better than the record itself, but I just, I think they'd, A pull it off really well because they have such an incredible multimedia mindset. And secondly, I want to be able to see who's in the band and like whether they take time out to like, you know, down like raw eggs, like they're Rocky or something like that. You know, it's like, okay, we did, we did 10 minutes of takes time to, you know, get back to the lap machine. Um, I just, will, I would just love to see their process. Yeah. Another thought I had was I would love to see a revamped version of I am trying to break your heart. Oh yeah, that would be that would be you know eight hours long. It would also include the Jim O'Rourke stuff because mm. none of that is in the movie. I don't even know if they shot that. I don't think that they did. Because um, Jim O'Rourke is like the Billy Preston. Oh yeah, of Wilco. Like he comes <laughs> in and kind of saves the day. So it'd be cool to see that. And also, I just love any kind of Jay Bennett, Jeff Tweedy drama. You know, it would you know that moment in Get Back where George Harrison you know, claps back at Paul McCartney. I mean, there'd be that times a hundred in a Yankee Hotel Foxtrot doc. So, you know, Sam Jones, the director of that movie, dig into the vault, give us a six hour version of that. I would, I would totally watch that. The anniversary of the album is, uh, next year. Oh, wow. I guess of the, of the official release. Right. Uh, is next year. Uh, so maybe we can get that done. I think that would be great. Um, let's move on to our next question. And this comes from Tyler. And I don't know if Tyler said where he is from. Nope. I don't think he did. Damn, nope. Tyler. Well, okay. Let's just say that he's also from Arnold, Missouri. From so the, he's from people. the IndieCast universe. Uh, hey, Stephen Ian. I recently reread Michael Azarod's Come As You Are for the first time in 25 years. It holds up really well as a book and as a portrait of a flawed artist. And it prompted me to revisit Nirvana's catalog with my 13-year-old son. 
Anyway, with the holidays quickly approaching, I was curious which books are on your Mount Rushmore of music books. This gives Stephen a chance to shill his own books, like Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the soundtrack of a generation coming in 2022. Thank you, Tyler. Um, so Tyler's wondering, what is on our M Mount Rushmore of music books? I guess that means like our four favorite music books. Do you have four favorite music books? Yeah, and they are This Isn't Happening, Twilight of the Gods, <laughs> Your Favorite Band is Killing yes. Me. And yes. for, for some reason, if you Google Stephen Hyden books, a second one that comes up is Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement. I don't know how that happened, but... Well, you know, I, that was uh, on the side. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like music books, I've actually like been honest with myself and gotten back into trying to read them um you know the original ones the first ones i think of that are like uh like i don't know how well this answer will age but the dirt the motley crew oral history and yeah. chuck uh Klosterman's, uh welcome to fargo rock city uh those are like the first books that i read and thought to myself like uh, like i just tore through those in like two days and you know fargo rock city was super important as well because you know, at that time, I felt like it was really difficult to find people writing about like music and sports at the same time. Like, I know that sounds like really silly now, but, you know, early 2000s, tougher to come by. And th that was a book that like made me think that maybe there was a career for me in this. So, you know, shout out to Chuck. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, I've tried recently to read the classics of you know, music criticism like uh mystery train and so forth and i just get like i don't you know like i know that it's like we're in the mob or whatever omerta and stuff but it's like i don't want to really read criticism i think the oral histories are what really uh you know what i really find to be interesting so the mount rushmore for me and i know these are very recent books as we also said in the uh, most recent Hall of Fame uh, episode, I don't acknowledge music that was made before 2001. So <laughs> I think Meet Me in the Bathroom was a recent one that I just tore through. Like, I couldn't get enough of that book. Um, same with, uh, it was just released like a few months ago, Dan Ozzy's Sellout, if, you know, if for no other reason, because, hey, finally someone's talking about major label emo and hardcore. Like, how could something be tailored more to my interests? Um, I think it takes a very um, astute look at a misunderstood and undercovered time. Uh, but as far as like the classic, like it reveals new information and also takes a good perspective. Uh, I got to mention The Big Payback by Dan Charnas. It's about yes. the, uh, the, the business side of hip hop. I read that along with Jeff Chang's Can't Stop, Won't Stop, uh, which is more of like a history of hip hop. And like those two books... Just endlessly fascinating. Um, totally, I could yeah, that, not I love get the Charnas book. Yeah, I, I read that. I think that came out ten years ago. Was it? It came out a while ago. I remember. I think I did the audio book of it actually, but huh. I really loved that book and the Jeff Chang book. Is both the both of those are essential. Yeah, music classic reads. Uh, my Mount Rushmore. You mentioned some of these already. I'm just going to go in order of like when I read them. Okay. Uh, number one is Hammer of the Gods by Stephen Davis, the Led Zeppelin biography, uh, <laughs> which was essential reading for me as a teenager, young teenager. Um, it's been demonstrated after the fact that a lot of that book is bullshit, <laughs> basically, that there's like a lot of misinformation in there. But as just like pulp fiction for classic rock, it's essential. I, I just tore through it as a kid. Mystery Train by Grail Marcus. You mentioned this book. You mentioned trying to get into it, not really, yeah. not really taking. This is a book I read probably when I was an older teenager, and it really influenced me in terms of just saying that you can use music writing as a way to talk about anything. Huh. Because there's lots of things in that book that have nothing to do with music writing. He'll be talking about, you know, the band, and then he'll go off on, like, American history for, like, two or three pages. <laughs> and I could see a lot of people rolling their eyes at that, but... You know, I am a pretentious music critic, and I, I found it inspiring, and uh, that's something that I, I, I still am inspired by today. Uh, Fargo Rock City by Chuck Klosterman, you yeah. mentioned this book already, uh, came out, I think it was 2000 it came out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know how younger music writers feel about Klosterman, but I know like for people our age of our generation, he was the most important music critic of that time in terms of 
everyone had an opinion on him. Yeah. You either liked him or you didn't like him. But you, you read him and you had an opinion. And there's really no critic like that today. Um, and he was, I think, like the last kind of celebrity music critic. I think if you were to poll random people, like name a music critic, Chuck Klosterman would probably be named the most, even though he's not really... He hasn't been a working music critic in quite some time. He still writes about it occasionally, but he, that's not his main thing anymore. Um, and just for me, too, seeing a guy come out of the Midwest, you know, with no connections to the East Coast or yeah. anything like that, get well-known, that was very inspirational. Um, finally, uh, Out of the Vinyl Deeps by Ellen Willis. This is a compilation of her work. She was a music critic that worked uh, in the 70s and 80s. I think she went into the 90s. Uh, most associated with the Village Voice. This is the book that, like, if, if you read those old school music critics, you know, the Lester Bangses and the Robert Criscos and Dave Marshes, Ellen Willis to me is the most contemporary feeling out of all of those. Yeah. You read her stuff and it feels like it could have been written last week. And it could have been written last week by, like, a critic who's, like, smarter than most critics working today. Like, it's just really great writing it has aged super well i think better than like most music writing mm. from that time in the 70s yeah. uh and she's not as famous as like say lester bangs but i really think that and as much as i like lester bangs i think she's a better critic than him so like i would say out of the vinyl deeps that's maybe like the least well known of these books but it's the one i would maybe recommend uh the most heartily so that would be on my uh, Mount Rushmore. I feel like we also have to shout out the book Flyboy and the Buttermilk yeah. by Greg Tate, mm. the great music critic who passed away this week yeah. at the age of 64. Uh, I've heard him described many times as the godfather of hip-hop journalism. Mm. Um, but he's also, you know, he was also a member of the of the Black Rock Coalition in the 80s. Mm. Uh, Living Color was like the most sort of famous... Uh, act associated with that but uh he was also an expert in like jazz music and funk and I mean, he wrote about all sorts of things yeah uh a true giant passed away this week so we got to shout out greg tate uh in this section as well uh we got one more question here in our mailbag do you want to read this one yeah because i think this one's really geared towards my interest so um andrew from maine here uh maine the state uh yeah, it's we. I don't think we get a lot of Mainers, you know. So I know I love Maine. I've never yeah. been to Maine, but I love the idea of Maine. Same. So, <laughs> hey guys, Andrew from Maine here. <laughs> Which song hits harder after three beers? TV on the radio, Wolf Like Me, or Wolf Parade, Shine a Light? This oh my is. God. You want to talk about IndieCast bot? Like, <laughs> yes, this is a great question. Two songs that came out at around the same time, like mid aughts indie rock. And just like so mid-aughts indie rock. Mm. I mean, these are like two of the great songs, I think, to come out of that era. And um, I'm going to give an answer. This is this might seem like I'm copping out here and doing like the push, but I think it's the most accurate answer. Mm. If, if, if I'm in a bar and one of these songs comes on the radio, I think the song that's going to hit me the hardest in a bar is Shine a Light. Uh, but if I'm at home having a couple beers, and I decided to go on YouTube and look up music videos. The Letterman performance of Wolf Like Me is the one that's going to hit the hardest. Like, just seeing them play that song, I think, adds another element. Mm. I mean, that song is great on its own, Absolutely. but that performance and just seeing them go balls to the wall is so great. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, these are both great <laughs> you know, classic indie rock songs from that era. Yeah. I, I just think that what, what the perspective of each particular song, you know, Wolf Like Me is kind of an avant-garde art rock song, you know, about fucking. Like it's the, you know, people were always criticizing TV on the radio. It's like, oh yeah, like these guys, like what's their personality? They're so guarded. And, you know, the lyrics of this song are pretty explicit. Uh, whereas, Wolf Parade Shine a Light, like that is kind of more of the, it, it's like proto Japan droids, proto like the Menzinger is about just being kind of a working man. You got Dan Bachner, who's probably got no sleeves on, um, just kind of doing that growly thing. Um, you know, they're Canadian. So 
that song came out in 2005 in the middle of me being in law school where uh, I could kind of refit the lyrics to be about that. I also did that with the Meadowlands, which is like very hard to do, but nonetheless, it's a very insular world where the like your entire life revolves around that. So I have very distinct memories of, you know, just getting through a tough week, you know, in the office tower, uh, and just getting super wasted and listening to Apologies of the Queen Mary. So Shine a Light to me is a song that gets improved by beer. I think it's a song that is kind of about that in a way, whereas like Wolf Like Me, um, you know, maybe if you're getting a little more drunk, you can get more into it and like rock the fuck out like they do on their uh, late night performances. But when I I think about like the three beers, like the get to the weekend and then you can – treat yourself to three beers. Like, I think that's what Shine a Light's about. And also, I I just want to give an extra shout-out to Andrew from Maine because, obviously, Apologies of the Queen Mary is, like, indie cast canon, but so few people correctly identify Shine a Light as the best song. Really? Like, what what song gets identified as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I'll Believe in Anything. Like, you know, modern... Oh, no, hey, man. Those are great songs, but, like, Shine a Light is the one. I also like the fact that it's really hard to make a bad song called Shine a Light. You know, that's also like the Constantines, another great Canadian band. Uh, you know, Rolling Stones have that. That's on uh, Exile on Main Street, right? Shine a Light. Yes, yes. I'm sure there's like 15 spiritualized songs called Shine a Light. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really tough to, you make, if you make kind of like a blue collar rock song called Shine a Light, it's going to be fucking awesome. Well, and also Shine a Light, the Rolling Stones one was the song that Noel Gallagher ripped off when he wrote Live Forever. Ah. I believe. Yes. So that we can call that a Shine a Light song as well. We can, I'm going to group that into the genre yes. of Shine a Light songs. Um, I think we have an empty mailbag now, or at least the. Yeah, <laughs> inbox zero. Bag. Yeah. The, the small bag that I put these letters into is now empty, which means that we are at the end of our episode. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.